Good morning, everyone. Um, usually the Holy Remnant, you don't see so many, but I'm so grateful for you all that sprung forward, I think, for the most part. You don't look like you sprung forward. Like Everyone's like, what are you talking about? We're here, people. We made it. Um, before I get started, I do want to take a moment to um, inform you all, actually. Um, this Sunday is Julia's last Sunday serving with us. Um, Pastor Hannah's maternity leave ends later this week, but I just thought it'd be nice for us as a congregation take a moment and thank Julia. She stepped in, she graduated in December, and then started with us pretty much right away. Um, yeah. And in, in true HBIC fashion, we asked her to not only cover worship and communication duties, we also told her to cover the whole office. So she did a wonderful, wonderful job. was a great blessing to us, and I just think it's really appropriate for us to thank you. So Julia, thank you so much. I almost made you come up, but I didn't want you to turn too red. Um, I think the, um, the, the tone of our worship this morning, we've been talking about just the blessing of it, of coming together, and I think that's beautiful. Um, I think it's, it's wonderful, right, like the chance to come together to worship the Lord. I think that that's a blessing for us, whether we're, we're far or near, whether we're online or in person. This idea that we come together and worship is something that I want us to hold on to. And, and, and what's beautiful about it is that most of our week is spent out there, right? So our hope and our prayers as we gather to worship is that you will be filled up as you go out, right? And I think that one of the shifts we're seeing in our culture is that, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, we used to tell people, invite people to church, right? And that's not really effective anymore, right? And, and now I think what's helped us is, is challenged us to, to realize that, like, we are the church, you know? So it's like, hopefully we come in here, we get built up. I'm not saying don't invite people to church. I'm just saying we're not doing it, right? But, like, I think the important thing is as we gather together, right, um, the Holy Spirit's always here. The Holy Spirit's already here. Hopefully we're uniting our hearts and minds to the Spirit, and we're being filled up because as we go out, that's where we're spending most of our time. So come, gather, worship, but be filled up so that we can go out. Um, we're in Lent, and this Lent we've been talking about how it's a walk and a journey with God. Uh, it's an invitation to hold on to God as God holds on to us. And as I was thinking about this service this morning, I realized that, that in the season of Lent, it's really a season of waiting, right? But it's a different kind of waiting than Advent. Because in this waiting, we are preparing, right, our hearts for this resurrection to come, for the, the blessing to come. But while we're in the wilderness, we need God to hold on to us. And while we have this expectation of the Holy Week to come, we know that sacrifice has to come before glory. And these are some of the things we hold on to as we go through Lent. Also, we need to invite not just God to hold on to us, but to remind ourselves that we are only here because of God's mercy. We repent and our God forgives us. We rely on God. So even as we do our prayers and our meditations, and our scripture study, we're relying on God and the Holy Spirit to come in us and to, to transform us, right? And for some of us, Lent is a season of sacrifice, of self-denial. But even in that sacrifice, we're doing what? We're looking towards Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice. But, but two things that was kind of new to me, or maybe newer, it jumped out to me in a new way in this season of Lent, is that traditionally or historically, the, the, the church, the body of Christ, also looked at this time as a time of, of sacrificing financially, right? So there was people who would actually say, in this season, I want to think about a way that I can give more to a sister and brother that's hurting. So that was new with me in Lent. Lent was always like what I had to do, right? But the idea that, that they had this outward focus, right, and who's struggling around me that in this season of sacrifice, I can sacrifice to bless them. But the other thing about Lent that was kind of new or really jumped out to me was really the idea of reconciliation, right? Because, again, I had made Lent so much more about what I have to do that I forgot that reconciliation is actually a, a very fundamental part of the Lenten story. Why? Because reconciliation can shortly be uh, defined as God making things right. And so if we go back through these themes of Lent, right, when we're in the wilderness— are we not met there by God's presence? As we march towards the cross, isn't it the love of Christ that's carrying us and pushing us forward, right? And as we, even as we go to the cross and see the death of Christ, are we not also met with Resurrection Sunday and the resurrection of Christ? And I, I thought about how even Jesus, before he leaves on the ascension, what does he do? He promises Emmanuel. He promises to be with us now and to the end of the age. And if that wasn't enough, he promises the Spirit. 
And if that wasn't enough, he promised us one another. Right? So as we're going through this, 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 this uh, Lenten season, I started thinking about, but what does it mean to be reconciled? And I think around here, if you have a quick Reconciliation 101 class, if you all should have it memorized right now, right? But our vision of this church, right, is to be uh, an intentional multicultural church, yes. But we want to be thriving, right? We think it's important that we're alive and living for Christ, right? We want to be diverse because we think that's what the kingdom of God looks like. But we do all that by sharing Christ's love locally and globally. So if you talk about reconciliation, that's where we begin, and so a lot of our language around here used to be about racial reconciliation. And for us, that's simply the call and the work of actually being members of one another. If we take a look at Western Christianity, especially our Christianity in our country, the fact that we love Jesus has not stopped us from oppressing and marginalizing and even killing one another. And so when we say racial justice or racial reconciliation, it's taking that step back to say, what does it mean that we love God, but we also belong to one another? And how do we live in a way that we're not just profiting from systems that's oppressing, we're ripping them down and building new ones? How are we actually being sisters and brothers together? If we're truly the body of Christ, why don't we always look like that? So that's the challenge of it, right? And it's not kumbaya, right? And I love that because kumbaya used to be gulagichi for come by here, right? Like it used to be gulagichi. If you don't know about the gulagichi, they're just fascinating group of African Americans that are kind of um in the South, right? Uh, and, and they're isolated a little bit from the rest of the mainland. I don't know if you ever had. If you ever met island people, they're always different. Right? And so the Gullah Geechee, though, because they were isolated from the mainland of the United States mostly, they held on to a lot of their African traditions, right? So, so Kumbaya, when we think of Kumbaya, we're like, ah, let's hold hands and hum together, right? But what they were actually saying is like, no, 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 Lord, come by here. And I think that's a little different than, hmm, let's hold hands, right? It's actually inviting God into it. So when we do reconciliation, the question for us becomes, are we inviting God into it? Right? Are we saying kumbaya or come by here? And, and so for us, one of the things we think is important is that we ought to be educated. We ought to know what, not just the history, but we ought to know what God is actually asking us to do. Because if we're not educated, we can't then be good advocates. Right? And if we're not good advocates, we can't have good relationships. And that's all important. And I was thinking about this. I was like, what's the best way to think about this? And I was like, oh, good. It's Hank. Food. Right? My favorite restaurant maybe in the world right now is a little restaurant in Lancaster called Callaloo, right? Now, I'm sure Trinidadian food existed before, but until I was educated on it, I didn't know it existed. And for a lot of us, when we think about racial reconciliation, racial justice, that's how it is. We know people are oppressed, but sometimes we don't think about it until we actually do the work to get educated on it, right? And then I tasted it, and it was delicious, and guess who became an advocate? This guy. Right? If you're ever in Lancaster, just go to Callaloo and get me something. Doesn't even matter what it is, right? I'll fix the rest. You just get me something, right? So I became an advocate, and that's the same path as we go through this racial justice, racial reconciliation. Because if we don't know what's actually happening out there, we can't fight for our sister and brother. So there's education, there's advocacy, but more than all of that is relationships. Because here's the sad reality of our human condition. We don't really care until we care until it's personal, right? I was in a conversation this week with a friend who was just like, uh, she has a, a friend, another friend of ours who adopted an African-American child, and she was struggling. She's just like, I just don't like that now she cares about racial justice because her son's black. And I was like, hey, listen, she cares. Let's start there. You know, it's just like, let's start there. We can build up on the other stuff, but that's the sad reality is that for some of us, until it's personal, we don't really care. And so when we think about reconciliation, these are some of the ways we think about it. But it's all based on scripture. For example, one of the things we learn in Colossians and Paul's letter to that is what? That, that, that God has reconciled all things through Jesus. So in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, it says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So why do we believe in reconciliation? Because Jesus is the ultimate reconciler. And it pleased God to have everything dwell in him. That because of the blood of Jesus, we're not just the only ones redeemed. 
all of creation is redeemed because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus is actually, because of his death, he has made peace through the blood that we can now have reconciliation in heaven and earth. God reconciles all things through Jesus. But then it gets a little bit harder because it's not just about what Jesus did in heaven and earth. It's because God has also reconciled us to one another. And in Ephesians, Paul writes this, right? For he, Christ, Jesus himself is our peace. For he has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in the flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if Jesus Christ has reconciled us to one another, how dare we live as people who are not reconciled to one another? So by us not doing the work of being reconciled to one another, we are actually not just making our brothers and sisters stumble, but we are actually working against the work of Christ. Because through the blood, through the cross, we're supposed to be one. And if you're not one with your brother or sister, you're actively working against the work that Christ has done. And I think that's what we see in the pain and brokenness of our world. We think about our relationships. That's what we see in the pain and brokenness because God is working. We all should not just be dreaming of the world as it should be. We should all be stepping into it, recognizing that God has created us. God has saved us. God has sent us to let our world know what the world will be like. It's up to you, empowered by the Spirit. So God reconciles all things in heaven and earth. God reconciles us together. And if you didn't get it yet, Jesus himself leaves you with this ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about not just reconciling us to God or, or not just looking at no one from a worldly point of view, but he calls us ambassadors, meaning that we're all supposed to represent him. The ambassadors don't live in their own country. They live in the enemy's country or another foreigner's country, but they represent their leader. And so when we think about this ministry of reconciliation and why we ought to be reconciled to one another is because Jesus depends on you to represent God. That's why when you read some of the scriptures and it says, forgive as I have forgiven you. Because if you don't forgive, I don't know if your father in heaven will forgive you. That's why I say, if you can see, have faith in the God you can't see, how can you not love your brother and sister who you do see? Those scriptures take on new life because these are not just maxims and principles. It's Jesus and God and the scripture coming together to say, if you want to follow God, you ought to look like God. And if you belong to God, you ought to belong to one another. Now, what does all of that have to do with reconciliation? Simple. I think for a lot of us, being reconciled to God is not just a good thing. It's the easy thing. We like that God forgives us. Amen? We like that God washes away our sins. We like that God takes our sin and takes it as far as the east is from the west. But that's God's work. But what is your ministry of reconciliation? As I thought about this sermon, I thought about how many of us right now are living not in reconciliation with our sisters and brothers. I thought about how many of us love God so dearly but we are living lives of broken relationships. We're, we're living lives where we don't talk anymore, where we've basically excommunicated people or we just stop investing in people. And so I was challenged as we go through this Lenten season, as we think about reconciliation, it's not just enough for us to say God has reconciled him to himself. What does it mean that God expects you to reconcile with your brother, with your sister, with even those who've hurt you? 
Now here, I'm not going to say, hey, God calls us to forgive and forget. That's not the message. And I think when we go into Jacob and Esau, you'll see in the story that, that Esau had every reason not to reconcile with Jacob. And some of his reasons might even be stronger than our own. But how do we get through this Lenten season to a God who wants to reconcile us to himself, to a God who's reconciling things in heaven and earth, to a God who's reconciling our sins through his sons and the death of the cross, and we're not willing to do the work to reconcile with our sister and brother. That's the rub. That's the entire sermon this morning. As I was thinking about all these great people in the Bible, I said, man, what about Jacob and Esau? So what about Jacob and Esau? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 33. I'll be reading the first 11 verses. I believe we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Genesis 33, starting at verse 1. Jacob looked up there, look up and there saw, bleh, start over. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed them, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed down too. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all that I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Let's pray to God. Father God, we thank you that you are indeed the God who reconciles everything through the blood and the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. That through his sacrifice, through his death, things on earth and things in heaven can be made right by you. Lord, we thank you that you redeem us. We thank you that you forgive us, that when we repent, you forgive us. We thank you that in your book, we are not only clean, but our names are written down. We thank you that even in this world that we live right now, Ephesians tells us we're already elevated to be in the high places with you. But God, our faith has never been just about us and you. It's also been us and our sister and our brothers too. So God, we ask forgiveness for forgetting that. We ask forgiveness for, for taking joy in our reconciliation, our redemption, our salvation, and forgetting to share the same grace and mercy and love with our sister and brother too. So God, we don't take lightly that there's severe pain that so many people have gone through. We don't take lightly that forgiveness doesn't come easy. We don't take lightly that hurt does not just go away and just magically disappears. But God, we pray this morning that you can help us. We pray this morning that you can move us along a little step closer, that you can help us look like you, like the God who loves without condition, like the God who forgives without abandon, like the God who welcomes even the worst of sinners home. And we thank you for this story of Jacob and Esau. It's a complicated tale. But Lord, we thank you for their example, that if they can come together, perhaps we can come together too. In your holy and precious name, amen. So Jacob and Esau, as I was studying this week, I realized that I'm probably going to have to go back at some point and unpack this story. There's a lot in here. This is not what I remember in Sunday school, right? This is actually maybe the worst, like, lesson you could plan for a Sunday school class. It's just, there's never like, oh, here's a moral story. Let's go by that, right? There's never like, who's the hero? Let's cheer for this person, right? I had a mentor who said, the God is the hero of the Old Testament. Save my life. Because you're reading through and you're like, how are these people this dense, right? Or how do they keep doing this stuff, right? But what's beautiful about this story is that God's salvation is not dependent on people's performance. 
is that God's love isn't even based on their faithfulness. Is that God's goodness is not depending on how good they are. And so before you get to Jacob and Esau, and we read the end of the story, right? I like to know it ends well. Because it takes a while to get there. So we're going to spend a little time getting there. But it ends well, right? Like that scene at the end is beautiful. That's what reconciliation is supposed to look like. But why do they even need to be reconciled? Well, it's complicated. See, Jacob and Esau, their grandpa was Abram, who became Abraham, right? The one God called and said, go to the land, I'll show you. And he says, yes, let's go. And when he gets there, God makes his promise to him that through you, all nations will be blessed. Through you, salvation will come. And God makes this covenant with him, which was this heavenly promise, right, that I am going to save the world through your line because of your faith. And so God then promises him a son, an heir to come through. But again, no one's perfect, especially not any of us, right? And so Abram, after waiting for a while, decides to help God out. And then you get the whole episode of Hagar and Ishmael. And so when the son of promise actually shows up in Isaac, and again, we're just going to do snippets. We're going to go quick, right? Two things I want to, to, to kind of hold on to about Isaac this morning, because I think it helps form Jacob and Esau, are, are what the, 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 the Jews and, and historians have called the Akedah, right? Which is the binding of Isaac. And what's fascinating about that is that because he was the son of promise, it kind of doesn't make sense that God would ask him to do this. But what's fascinating is that Jewish scholars have been united for thousands of years that somehow, way, Abraham knew that God would not kill his son. That's faith. And he felt that if God happened to kill his son, he was going to raise him up anyway. But Abraham was willing to take something so precious and meaningful to him and offer it up to God. And God was able to not just, oh, test him, but God was able to say, like, do you really fully put your faith in me? But that binding, right? And that, 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 that binding also brings us to Ishmael in a sense, because you'll see something that parents should never do consistently through the generations of this family, and that's play favorites. And it's undoubted, yes, Isaac was the son of promise, but it's undoubted that Isaac was the favorite. And there's something about bad habits we do as parents. It doesn't just go to our kids. It can go to generation upon generation upon generation. When Sean and I got married, we had a friend who was talking about, like, what are you going to do when you have kids? Like, are you nervous? I was like, no. My only goal in life is we can't be the worst. As long as we're not the worst parents ever, they got a shot. You know, like, we got Jesus on our side. We got the Holy Spirit. We got prayer. We got community. As long as we're not the worst, they got a chance. And one of the ways you don't be the worst is not to pick favorites. But I want you to hold on to that because they pass on generation to generation to generation. Their parents, right? So, so grandpa's Abraham. Dad is Isaac, right? Mom is Rebecca. She is a go-getter. Hold on to that one, too, because that also gets passed down. I don't know if you remember the story, but, but uh, Isaac sends out his servant to go and find a wife for his son, the son of promise, right? And the, the servant basically prays this prayer, like, God, I just need you to make this simple. Like, send me somebody who feeds me, who gives me water, and that'll be good, right? Rebecca, the go-getter, shows up, not only gives him water, but makes sure the animals are fed. And he's like, God, this is awesome. I need to pray like this all the time. Like, thank you for showing up. This is great. Rebecca also comes from a complicated family. They're a bit of, I don't know if I want to call them tricksters. In my better days, I might call them liars. That's also important. Because when he shows up, right, if you read through the Genesis narrative, right, like everything's beautiful at the end. And at the end, they're like, but can she stay 10 more days? And he's like, but God said she's got to go now, right? And so you have this family that, that they're going to do things their way. Hold on to that, too. Because all of this gets passed down generationally. So by the time you get to the twins, right, we have favoritism that gets passed down. We have people who are go-getter who will maybe, what's the best way to put it? They're shrewd, right? They may not lie to you, but they'll stretch the truth, right? Uh, eventually they lie, but it will get to that later. But like they, they'll, they'll go through, like here's the rules. They'll, they'll stretch it as much as they can, right? Or sometimes they'll just try to dupe you, right? All of this is coming down. So then God blesses Rebecca with twins, and everybody listening to this, and if Moses is retelling this to the people of Israel, everybody listening to this is like, ooh, this is a problem, <laughs> right? Like in our culture, like twins, that's a blessing, double blessing. But they're like, listen, 
Abram was God's favorite. Cool, we got that. But then he played favorites with Ishmael and Isaac. That wasn't good. Now you're telling me Isaac got twins. Only one could win. Right? Like, like already listening to the story, about, oh, this isn't good. And as the story unfolds, you see all these things that are setting up these two to basically war against each other. The first one is that's twins, who gets the birthright? Right? Who's going to be the family representative that, that is, is, is standing before God and able to even go to the temple to worship? Who gets to be the patriarch? But then who also gets the blessing? <laughs> like Abraham is going to be blessed, but who is going to be the one who's going to carry the blessing? And so Rebecca, as the twins are, are warring in her room or just maybe just rolling around, right? She goes and she, she, she seeks the prophets. And they said, well, you know, the reason you're having such trouble in this pregnancy, I wish you could say this to women today, right? Like, the reason you're having such trouble in this pregnancy is two nations are warring inside of you, right? Like, I, was like, I read that as a kid. I'm just like, ooh, that's deep. Like, what do you say to that, right? It's just like, okay, <laughs> keep warring, kids. Keep it down in there. But then the prophecy also ends by saying, the older will serve the younger. So everybody listening will be like, what kind of drama are we in? Not only do you give them twins, now you're going to tell me the younger one's going to be over the older. That's, that's wild. And what happens when they're born, right? You remember the story? Esau comes out first. But Isaac, uh, Jacob comes out what? Holding his heel. As if to say, like, uh-uh, I'm coming too. Right? Like, like, it's both of us now. And as they grow up, they're opposites, right? Like, there's just the opposites attract, but sometimes they don't. Most times they don't. And, and what's fascinating is that you read the Christian scholars be like, well, Esau was a hunter. You read some Jewish scholars like, he was a heathen, right? Like, don't, like you read the Christian scholars like, well, well yeah, Jacob, you know, he, he sat in the tents. You know, he was a tent dweller. You read the Hebrew scholars like, well, he was a scholar. He was reading in them tents, right? And I'm just like, well, what was he reading? You know, like, it's just like, I don't know if they had scrolls back then, but that's just me, right? But he was studying, right? You read the Hebrew scholars, they're like, not only was he a heathen, he was worshiping idols, right? And, and so what's fascinating to me when I say favoritism gets passed down generationally, how Esau is remembered is also passed down generationally. He's the bad guy in the story. But I think when you look a little bit deeper, you realize that, like, is he really the bad guy? Or at least, can we understand how he got to be the bad guy? Because everyone lifted up Jacob. Now, there's a line in the, the, the Genesis narrative that says, well, well, Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. No! Right? Like, like, that's not good. Like, if everybody knows it, like, it's not good in the first place. But if everybody knows it, it's worse. But, like, this is how they set up their family. It's like, that's my boy. He hunts and brings me stew. I love him. That's my boy. He reads with me and sits in the tent. Yes, love him. And then when you go through the teenage years, Esau's out hunting, right? Comes back and he's hungry. And, and so Jacob, who again, right? The, the, the tension with Jacob is he's really a hard person to make a hero. Because he's just, I don't know, I'm getting heavy, he's going to yell at me or something. But it's like, he's just very deceitful, right? Like, there's no other way to put it, you know? So Esau comes back and he's starving, now, now, the Jewish scholars are really rough on Esau. They're like, well, he's an idiot. Like, they, like, he's just not bright, you know? Because to them, the birthright meant you were the spiritual head of the family. And for some red lentils, right? If there's ever a need not to be a vegetarian, this is it. For some red lentils, right? He sells his birthright. He serves God's chosen as the spiritual head of the family that the Messiah is going to come from. He sells them for some lentils, I rest my case. <laughs> but what's fascinating and the challenge of this is we still live in that culture and society too. Where if someone is maybe not the brightest or if someone doesn't know what's all at stake, we still elevate the people who take advantage of them. Right? Just think about how much our society and culture loves billionaires when most billionaires get their money by oppressing people. We still live in a society and culture that as long as it's in the rules, you can take advantage of people. And that's what he does to his brother. But it doesn't just stop there. Remember Rebecca, she's also a go-getter. In fact, the name for, 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 for Jacob in, in the Hebrew can be translated as go-getter. 
he gets that from his mama because he's a mama's boy and her favorite. So she hears and knows that Isaac is about to die and this blessing that's coming. And I don't even know if we understand this to the fullest, right? Because I think sometimes we think of this as just like, I will bless my son. No, no, this is the blessing, right? Like the one, one writer says, like, when you think about the blessing, think about it as soul to soul, passing on everything God's taught me and giving it to you. And if you go back and you see how Jacob was blessed and how Esau was blessed, it's the exact opposite. And so Rebecca literally steals the blessing from her other son because she wanted her favorite to get it. And you know the story, they concoct the thing, they put fake stuff on him. And here's the thing, teenage boys smell, right? But like, I think if you had two in the house, you would know that this thing smells. So the things I've been struggling with this week is, I know Isaac is blind. But if you go through the narrative, he's not even convinced that this is really Esau. But he still goes along with it. And that's tricky to me because you may be blind, but if you don't recognize the voice, if you don't recognize the, 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 the touch, right? And you certainly, if it's a teenage boy, you recognize the smell, right? If one is out in the field and one is in the tent, to me, that's distinct smells, right? That's just me. So the challenge to this I've been thinking about is we say, yes, Rebecca and Jacob deceived, but does Isaac go along with it too? Because as Isaac, as a father, realized that, you know what, Jacob might be sneaky, but maybe, just maybe, he's the better one for the blessing. I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask them that, right? Like, I should, like, we read this in Genesis, but what really happened? Tell me. But either way, when Esau comes back, he's angry, and he vows to kill his brother. You can get it, though, a little bit, right? This is the same brother who stole the birthright because I was hungry and gave me some lentils. This is the same brother who now pretends to be me and steals the blessing from our father. And our father takes so much in this blessing that all I get is he will be basically, the nations will bow down to him. You will bow down to him too. Like it's like everything is the exact opposite, right, that his brother gets. So he's angry, right? Rebecca learns this and sees this, and she's like, you know what? I need you to go away and go to my family, right? Sends him away. But here's what's tricky about the Jacob narrative. We don't really see anything in the story that Jacob says, I'm sorry. We don't even see him saying, like, I wronged my brother. And not at this point. We don't even see him saying, God, forgive me of my sin. None of that exists. In fact, while he's on the run, guess who visits him? God! This is a hard story to teach kids. Right? It's just like, wait, he did what's wrong, but then God shows up? Yeah, not only did God show up, but angels come down too. Right? There's a ladder at Bethel. Angels going up and down. Right? And God basically comes to him and says what? I'm with you. You're going away now, but I'm going to bring you back. And if that's not enough, God makes the same promise that was made to Abraham, now goes directly to Jacob and it says, listen, I want you to look at this land that you're laying on. I'm going to give it to you and all your descendants. I want you to see the, the sand on the, store, on the floor. Your people are going to be like the dust all across. I'm going to bless everything that you touch, basically. And I'm going to watch over you. This is a tricky story. We're elevating someone who's deceived. We're elevating someone who's stolen. We're elevating someone who's basically done his brother wrong. But that's what happens. Now, some of you might say, well, when then he went to Re Rebecca's family and learned the hard way, right? Because Laban, her brother, his uncle, does deceive him too. But even after those 14 years of work, <laughs> Jacob is fully blessed. When you see what he's returning with, in fact, Jacob even deceives Laban, right? There's a story in there where he basically, like, like grows his own herd, right? By saying, like, hey, listen, if these are this color and spotted, they're mine. If they're healthy, they're yours. And then he would take the healthy ones and make them and then make them his, right? Like, he was literally cheating on the job, live and in print. Like, like it was just, he was doing it. But God kept blessing him. And that's hard for me. I got to be honest. It's hard for me because I'm just like, I'm waiting for the redemption, right? It's just like, how he keep cheating and getting away with it? But maybe God's love isn't dependent on our performance, Maybe God's love isn't dependent on how good we are. I get all that, right? But God keeps blessing him. And as he's coming back, right? He's coming back because on Jacob, on that ladder, when God comes down and says, this is the land I'll give you, he's coming back to get that gift of his. 
But he's coming back now with wives, with children, with cattle, with servants. And then he hears, hey, Esau's coming. And it's almost like all the stuff he's gotten away with. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> Esau, whoo, that's not good. It's not good. We haven't really talked for 20 years. What are we going to do now, you know? So he tries to fix it himself. He's like, you know what? Maybe if I send him gifts ahead of time, right? But then you see how messed up this guy still is because then he orders his family in order. He's like, first, the servants and the kids they had for me, y'all go first. Leah, I don't really like you that much. You go second. Rachel, I like, no, I'm dead serious. Rachel, I like you third. You go here. Then I'll be back here, right? In fact, let me think about it. All y'all need to go, and I'm going to just chill here for a while. Just go. If Esau catches y'all, just you'll figure it out. But I'm going to chill here, right? But what happens that night? God shows up again. And this time is the famous story of him wrestling with God. And what's fascinating about this is that I never thought you could wrestle with God and win. And you can say at the end of the story while he's, he's walking with a limp, right? But I think it wasn't just that God let him win. There's a fascinating quote by Frederick Buechner, and he reminds us that, that what Jacob truly learns when he's touched by God is that for his whole life, power, wealth, and success, you can outsmart people, you can be shrewd, and you can get it. But peace, love, and joy only come from God. So as they're wrestling all night, he realizes that. And it's almost like sometimes God has to let you do this, right? Some of us are hard-headed, right? It's like he uses up all his energy, all his might. And when God's, the dawn's coming and God's about to leave, he says, God, please bless me. And sometimes that's what it takes, right? Because we're smart enough, we're shrewd enough, we'll break the rules enough to get ahead. But if you want the things of God, it's not about how smart you are. It's about how much you're willing to let go and trust him. And so that's what happens, right? So Jacob's terrified. Esau's bringing 400 men. He tries to take control. He sends the message and gifts ahead. He sends the family of servants. He, he prays to God about the promises of God. He's like, God, you promised this land to me. Please give it to me. He wrestles with God, but he's touched by God. And so when we think about or we wrap up this reconciliation thing, I think when we think about our personal situations, I don't know who you need to be reconciled with. Maybe you're in perfect relationship with everyone around you, right? Awesome. God bless you. Teach the rest of us how. But I think what you learn from this story is that it's okay to be terrified. It's okay to be scared. If there's a relationship that's frayed, whether it's something you've done or something someone's done to you, it's okay to be terrified. God is not offended if you're terrified and you say, God, this is hard. I don't know if I can do it. God's not offended if you're terrified. The second thing I think the story teaches us is that control is not your God. God is. Jacob tried to control the situation, right? Try to control the message, try to send the gift, try to pacify Esau. And when he realized that might not work, then he turned to God. And I think for some of us, when we think about reconciliation and making things right, we have control and we want to hold on to control. We want to dictate how the conversation is going to go. We want to dictate how the person is going to feel. We want to dictate what reaction they're going to have to us because we have this great truth we're going to give them, right? Control is not your God. God is. So when we actually go into reconciliation, it's about starting by turning to God. And Jacob does his first thing I would say that's redeemable. Maybe not the first, maybe the second, right? When he prays to God, he simply just prays the promises God's already made to him. And I think when you don't have the words to pray, Sometimes that's the best way to pray. Say, God, you promise you'll be with me always. I need you. God, you promise never to leave me or forsake me. I need you. God, you promise to complete the work that you began in me. I'm still incomplete. God, you promise to love me. I would love to feel that love right now. So he prays back the promises of God to him, right? And then he submits humbly to God and asks for God's touch. I don't know if I'm going to give you the 10 steps to reconciliation this morning, but I think that's a good place to start. And I think Jesus kind of does some of this in Matthew 18, right? And, and so if you want like a, a quick way of how you do it, right, it's okay to be scared. I got to give control to God. I got to start by turning to God. If I got nothing to say in this situation, I'm going to pray back these promises God prayed to me. And I'm going to ask God to intervene and touch and work in me and work in this person. In Matthew 18, Jesus says it like this. Go to your brother and sister who you need reconciliation with. 
Go to them directly. How many times do things get worse? Because we talk to A and B and C and D and forget the original person we're in conflict with. It almost always helps to go to them directly, right? That's how you form reconciliation. And Jesus says, if that doesn't work, I want you to come back. I want you to be bold and get some help. Right? Get people that you both respect to go and walk into that situation with you. But a lot of us either think we can fix it on our own, and then if we can't, we give up. Right? And he says, no, no, no. If that doesn't work, find someone you both love and respect to go in there with you. And if that doesn't work, bring in the community that's around you. And that's scary, right? Because I think sometimes I'd rather, I know I'm not going to put this on you. You guys are good Christians, right? But sometimes we'd rather hold on to our pettiness and our bitterness and, yes, even our hurt, rather than let God actually reconcile and start the healing process of us. So you go to the person directly. You bring help. You bring the community. And in the whole time, you trust God. You trust God in prayer. And I, I love this, right, because I realized this years ago, right, because I grew up in church and we say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of it, right? But that's funny because we usually use that for worship. But it's a weird thing to say for worship because God is already here and God is everywhere. You know why it's even harder that verse? It's because Jesus is talking about it in conflict, right? The next time you're fighting and yelling at somebody, there I am in the midst, that's a little bit different, right? If I'm like, I'm here to worship God. God is here. God is in the place. God is in the midst. That makes me feel good, right? When I hurt someone who I love and I'm trying to justify it and God says, there I am in the midst, that stings a little bit more. I think Jesus says that to motivate us, to remind us that there I am in the midst because I'm inside both of you. And reconciliation is impossible if you are not acknowledging and, and, and humbly coming down and bowing down before me, yes, but also humbly going to your brother and sister. So, yes, praise God he's in the midst when we gather to worship. But remember, God's also in the midst in that argument, in that broken relationship, in that hurt that you've done, but also in that hurt that you're holding on to. And hopefully that brings you relief. Me, it terrifies me. To be honest, it terrifies me. I wish God wasn't in the midst of my arguments and conflicts, but he is. And I've learned that because he is, I can make it through. So this Lent season, don't just focus on how am I getting right with God. I want you to search your hearts this week and think about your relationships this week. Where do you have to go and make things right? Because that's what God calls all of us to be doing. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to close by singing a song that I think some of you might know. It's called We Will Feast in the Heart of Zion. I'd like to also invite any of the pastors up. We'd love to pray for you for anything going on or, or, or yeah, anything going on or something you respond to in the service. But as we're thinking about this idea that God reconciles us to, to him but also calls us to be reconciled to each other, we remember that reconciliation doesn't mean you got to line everything up perfectly, but it does mean you got to come humbly. It doesn't mean you have to know the right words to say, but it does mean that your heart should be filled with love. It doesn't mean that you're going to understand everything, but it does mean you're going to actually take the time to see the person, right? And lastly, it's going to be costly, but the only thing more costly than reconciliation is losing relationships and not looking like our Jesus. Let's stand and sing together.
Over 30 years ago, um, at the onset of our civil war in Liberia, uh, most of you know this story, um, my dad was killed. And we, at the time, didn't know how it happened or why it happened. Um, but one of the burdens that we carried is that at the time, only two people knew where he was. And one of them was my mother, and the other was his brother. And so my mom, for 30 years, didn't talk to my dad's side of the family. And I share that story because <laughs> at the onset of the pandemic, I realized that I had been carrying that same burden too. And so I told my mom, <laughs> patriarchy's bad, right? But sometimes you can use it for good. So I said, mom, I'm the head of the family now. That's, that, if you know my mom, you know that's not how it went. <laughs> but I, I realized that how can I believe in the reconciliation of God? in my own family, I wasn't willing to do that work. And so I reached out to them. And what was funny is it reminded me of this Jacob Esau story because I, I, I think my cousin, my first cousin, my, 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 my uncle's son was Jacob, right? He had all the gifts, he had the speech rehearsed, he had everything, right? And, and all I wanted to do was say hello. I think sometimes when we think about reconciliation, it starts it starts with that next step and that first step. And, and, and I knew that this was a burden, but I didn't know how to get at it. And it's very complicated. We're still trying to work it out. But I share that little piece to tell you that whatever brokenness is in our families, that we have a God who can heal it. Amen? Father, God, we thank you so much that you are indeed the God of reconciliation that you sent Jesus not just to make things right in heaven, but things on earth. That Jesus, you died not just to save us from our sins, but to somehow save us from ourselves. That Holy Spirit, you live inside of us, transforming us into the image of Jesus. So God, I pray that we can truly take this ministry of reconciliation that for us, it's not just about the big systemic things like racial justice, but it's also about the interpersonal things like family, like friends. And God, I know there's a lot of us in this room who've been hurt, and we can't even imagine reconciliation. We've been hurt so deeply that, you know what, we're okay. But God, I pray that you speak to even us too, to know that okay is not what you want from us good, great, marvelous, amazing is what you want for us. So God, help us to forgive. Help us to forgive in a way that we can truly be set free, not be bound by the chains of anger, by the chains of hurt, by the chains of frustration. But help us to be set free. Help us to stop drinking that wicked poison that's poisoning our souls and give us the courage to trust you, to forgive. And God, teach us how to come humbly, how to rely on you, how to give up control by submitting to you. So Lord, in the hard conversations we need to have, into the, the prayers we need to throw up to you, the grace that we need from you, we ask that you fill us up now with love, with grace, with mercy, with compassion. Lord, we thank you that you've reconciled all things. And we pray now that we can be instruments of your reconciliation, telling your message, your good news, and showing what your love looks like by being willing to make things right. Lord, we thank you you've reconciled us to you. We pray now that you help us reconcile to our sisters and brothers too. In your holy and precious name, amen. God bless you all.